Welcome to Building Better Businesses, an ABA podcast. Learn firsthand from business owners who built successful ABA businesses. Utilize proven techniques and strategies to help your practice thrive. This is Building Better Businesses, an ABA podcast with Jonathan Mueller. Dr. Robbie Elfatal is the founder and chief executive officer at Morocco Learning, a clinician-led autism therapy provider headquartered in Boise, Idaho. He's a three-time founder and entrepreneur. He's also a board advisor to a multi-state private equity-backed autism therapy platform, where he advises as a subject matter expert in ABA and organizational health. Robbie, welcome to the pod. Thanks, bud. I'm happy to happy to be here. This has been a long time in the coming. I mean, we've known each other on LinkedIn for, I don't know, a year, a couple of years yeah. and just first met at ABAI last was, month in Boston. That was um, delightful. Yeah. We it just had so many um, extraordinary conversations. And um, like in my mind, Robbie, you are like the definition of a serial entrepreneur. Um, and I, I, I love, can you share about like your first entrepreneurial endeavor uh, at Angel Stadium? Um, and like what yeah. made you so successful? Yeah, that's, it's interesting that I never thought about my, my role at Angel Stadium as uh, entrepreneurial, but when, when, when I thought, when I thought through this, this question a little bit more, I was like, man, that's, that's really interesting that uh, Jonathan thinks of it that way. But look, uh, my very first job, my very first real job in high school, I was a peanut guy. I sold, <laughs> I sold peanuts at Angel Stadium. And so me and a, and a, and a bunch of the, uh, the players from the basketball team applied for this job. And, you know, you have options as a, as a high school kid. You could, you could go make a little bit more money perhaps elsewhere on an hourly basis. Uh, but we, you know, I took this risk. I was like, well, I could go work at Angel Stadium as a peanut guy and I'll make minimum wage plus commission. And I think at the time I was getting like 50 cents a bag for every bag of peanuts I sold. So dude, I just, I just hustled. Like I remember like my very first paycheck, like connecting this idea that the harder I worked, the, it defined as like, I, I was, I was relatively clear with like my objective, like the more, the more sections I could, I could hit the, like the faster I can move up and down the, you know, the stadium, the more bags of peanuts I would sell. So dude, ultimately I just, I learned from a very early age that like, my, you know, the, the work ethic and the effort that I put into, you know, the thing that I was doing really did, uh, did, did contribute to, uh, to success. And at that time, as a high school kid, your definition of success is like, I have to make as much money as I can in the short season, because I got a lot to do I'm on the basketball team. I've got academics that, you know, you just, you got a lot going on. So it was a very, it was a very, uh, exciting, you know, it was a very exciting job. I was very good at it. And, uh, yeah, I, I tell people that my, it took me a really long time to make the, the, the amount of money per hour that I made as a peanut guy. I'm not kidding. I would make like, I would work for two and a half hours and they would give you dinner or, or lunch or whatever, depending on the time of the game. And I would make like $300 a night minimum usually. Yeah. 300 bucks a night. I, you know, the, the idea that you just like out hustled everyone. Right. And, and that's, I, I don't know. Someone once told me like to be like, as an entrepreneur, just work harder than everyone else. And like, yeah. then, you know, you can't compete. Like I, I, I remember man, my, uh, my first job was, um, uh, was in seventh grade. I was a, a paper delivery boy and I used to get paid like, I don't know, six cents every paper I delivered and I'd get these like stacks. Right. And, and, and my friends would like get stacks of like, of papers too. But I, I would be like, I don't care. I'm going to go a mile. I'm going to bike two miles away. I just want like more papers. Whereas my buddies were like, ah, dude, I'm not going to go farther than like half a mile outside of the neighborhood. Cause yeah. that's not going to get more. I was like, no, just give me like what I can, but yeah. it's that hustle. Right. That like is, yeah. I think an essential ingredient. Yeah, no, for sure. That's exactly what it was there. So Robbie, can entrepreneurial behaviors like be learned or entrepreneurs just wired and born differently? Yeah. You know, when we talked, we talked about this at ABAI, I think. Um, and that's it. I think it's a million dollar question. Honestly, the, I think that to an extent, yes, absolutely. You can learn what you need to learn to become a successful entrepreneur as evidenced by the fact, like my journey, I, I didn't start 
I started in a very different place. Obviously, you would you would hope that over a course of time you would you would acquire certain skills and you'd grow in your you know in your abilities and and uh, and so. But I do think that there are certain perhaps elements of you entrepreneurship that might be more you know certain people might be more biologically wired uh, to be entrepreneurs. Like I, 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 I give the example of like risk taking. There are certain people that just are not, you know, and it could, it could be attributed to their learning history uh, or, or not. It just, you, there's an immense amount of risk that you have to take as an entrepreneur. And uh, it's interesting to, to think through like both of our parents. And I, when I say our parents, I mean, my wife, my wife's also a behavior analyst. She's, you know, partner with me and, and everything I do. I couldn't have done anything uh, without her. And, you know, both of our parents were, were entrepreneurs also, uh, which is interesting. Like my dad owned a, a, a gas, a gas station, an Exxon gas station in Southern California. Um, and my, my, my wife's dad, my father-in-law, Mike, he, uh, he owned a, a, a pool maintenance company and, and, I'm sure, you know, both of them had to take risks and, and they did take risks. And at times the risks pay off and, and other times, you know, you, you lose. Like if, if you, if you view, uh, you view business in, um, you know, the way that you should sometimes, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So I think you can certainly learn what you need to learn to be a successful entrepreneur. But uh, I also think that there are a number of things that you come to entrepreneurship that, you know, could be really helpful. Again, like I think of risk, I, I, I'm probably just more wired to take risks, uh, than, than perhaps, you know, other people. Mm. I, it, so this is insightful because I, I think you're exactly right. There's just this risk paradigm that someone signing up to be an entrepreneur has to have some level of comfort with, and you can grow that level of comfort over time. But I wonder, so on that note, like, do you engage in risky behaviors outside of work? You know what I mean? Is this something where like that carries over or, or those just two totally different risk landscapes? Yeah. You know, I, I'd say that I'm, I'm primarily, I engage in the most amount of risk in, in my, in my professional life. I'm, uh, well, it's, it's hard to know. Like that's a, that's a good question. Uh, I, I, I tend not to do, um, I had a professor in college who said, you should never risk your life for a thrill. And so <laughs> I, I've, I've taken that with me for a long time. So I got five kids to take care of. And, mm. and so, um, I, I'm generally not like very, uh, risky in, uh, in, in other areas of life. Although like I have a very, um, we, we recently started working with a financial advisor and we did, you know, we did kind of a, a, a risk profile assessment and there I came out relatively risky also. Um, so my, my aversion to risk is like very low, um, which is interesting. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not sure why that is, but yeah. So perhaps, perhaps that's a, that's a good question. Maybe, maybe huh. I'm, maybe I'm more likely to engage in more risks than I, than I think. Huh. You know, as you said that I have, you know, you do the retirement planning, right? There are these online yeah. portals. I, I, and I, whenever I do those, I come up as the absolute like highest risk tolerance, but there's also like yeah. a risk, like the risk reward time frame, right? To that, right? Yeah. If you have, and that's a whole separate yeah. like topic, but you know, similarly, I, I mean, I love to climb rock climb. Um, in fact, for father's day, just a week and a half ago, my kids took me out climbing. Um, I, I love to like mountain bike and ski, which objectively might be like slightly riskier behaviors, but it's like, no, that's why I climb with rope. Right, dude. And like, you get a lot of trading. Yeah. So I know yeah. it's hard to say, but you are, um, I mean, you have always come across to me as sort of this lifelong learner and like that you're constantly shaping your own and learning up your own behaviors. Like how do you shape your own entrepreneurial behaviors with intention ongoing? Yeah. So that's a, that's a very good question. And I would say uh, like 10 years ago is when I start my entrepreneurial, started my entrepreneurial journey. Um, I've been in the field for roughly 20 years. I started working in education. So I was, you know, working in early intervention classrooms with, with uh, kids with autism, but 10 years in, so my entire career through that point was very like clinically focused. Uh, but then when I made my transition into entrepreneurship, I started to practice, uh, that's when I realized a couple of years in that if I didn't grow my skill set outside of like if I didn't grow my my skill set outside of the you know the the clinical work then I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't sustain because I just I continued to run into like issue after issue after issue and I just needed to I needed to learn so 
at that time, I started surrounding myself with more mentors and uh, individuals who just like had a deeper knowledge base of, of mm -hmm. business. And it was through this, just the community around me that I, that I built that, um, you know, it really kickstarted like my, my path, the, the, the learning path of growing as an entrepreneur, growing as a, as an individual who, um, viewed business properly. And when I, when I say that, I mean, like my, my, my view of business is that, um, you know, I go out and do what I do to create value for other people. Um, I don't view business as, as a vehicle by which, you know, I, I can make money exclusively. I view business as a way in which to get all the people together that I love working with to go out and do amazing things. And so um, I just, I needed to, I needed to grow. So part of that was like, when I did my, when I did my doc program, I, I, I specifically wanted to do like my, my, my PhD. I wanted my, my line of research to be, um, in organizational behavior, I, I mm. love organizational culture. So like, I try to read, you know, I try to read 50 plus books a year if I can. Um, I, you know, last year I did, this year I'm a, I'm a little behind, um, but I, I read as much as I can. I learn from other entrepreneurs. Uh, I think, you know, when I think of wisdom, it's like the ability to take knowledge and apply it. And so mm. I just try to learn as much as I can, which is why I love like talking to you at, at ABAI. Cause we, I mean, we had an amazing conversation. We must've spent like two and a half hours in that, in that lobby and that's, or that Starbucks just like chatting. And I think, I, I mean, I don't know, like I, I'm not gonna speak for you, but I would have stayed there talking to you all day. So I, I just try to learn as much as I can from, from my environment, just everything happening around me. That it, it, the reason that's so um, powerful and, and humbling to me, and I, and I agree, like I, I could have talked to you for hours, but it's this idea like you are um, like if you're if you're the smartest person in the room, go find another room. Right. But that takes you have to cultivate yeah. that yeah. habit of, yeah. ooh, let me see. Um, there's this vulnerability. Right. Of let me see if I can go and find others who will help to guide and accompany me on my journey. Yeah. But that's powerful, dude. And I, I love yeah. that you read 50 books a year. I, I love reading as well. And it's, um, you know, this idea that leaders are readers. And, yeah. um, it's just that constant learning discipline. So we'll have to yeah. talk about, it. I'm on Goodreads. So any listeners who are on yeah. Goodreads, that's where I like track all I my am. books. Are you? Yeah. All right. So I'm going to drop started. you. <laughs> oh, did I you? Yeah. I, you know, I love it. Um, particularly for, well, coming back to what you described, like the community aspect of Goodreads, right? You could like yeah. connect with friends, you'd yeah. see what they're yeah. reading. So I'll, I'll drop your profile, um, mm -hmm. and mine in, in the show notes. And, uh, and, uh, that'd be cool. I, I want to, um, I'll I definitely want to learn what you're reading. I'll also say that, you know, you'd be surprised what you can learn outside of like business and outside of even like clinical, um, you know, the, the literature. So I'll, I'll read things that inevitably, like it could be a fiction book. And I just like, I take things away from that. That could be totally profound to like what I'm doing as, as an entrepreneur. And so um, mm. you can learn a lot from, you can learn a lot from reading different types of, you know, different genres. And so highly important. Hundred percent. Yeah, you don't, you don't you don't just have to read like you know the the, the quote unquote businessy or OBM um, books or otherwise. Right. I always yeah. I don't know about you. I always have to have like at least one like nonfiction, but one fiction book as well yeah. that I'm reading at the same yeah. time because fiction tends yeah. to clear my head, right? And I, I have to think I think a little bit less than when I'm reading yeah. nonfiction. Yeah. I don't know if that's. Yeah, I also have like five books going at a time. So yeah. let me put you on the spot. What are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? Okay, so this is uh that's a that's a great question. I am reading um what is it? It's Dale Carnegie's book, uh How to Win Friends and Influence People. I'm reading it for the second time because uh like we were talking about before the podcast started, I'm reading with my sons. So I thought it would be like a first good book to read with my sons. Um as I as I told you um, you know, before we started, I'm I'm my got a thirteen and a half year old and a fifteen year old. And so I'm I'm trying to teach them some different like uh, competencies to be men of consequence, you know, to have value and to yep, contribute yep. to society. And so um, you know, like like we talked about with my beard, I, I shaved because I, I wanted to teach them on Father's Day how to shave. So um, we did we did that on Father's Day, which was a fun moment for us. And then we're we're reading um, how to win friends and influence people. And it was funny because in the first chapter, we actually we contrasted what what Dale said with like uh, the radical candor framework. I'm sure you're familiar mm -hmm. with with mm -hmm. radical candor. Yeah, we we contrasted that with like, hey, you know, sometimes you can't just always tell people what they want to hear. Sometimes you have to be radically candid. So it's really fun to read like in the context of you know 
take a book and then you, you look at it from multiple vantage points. And so we actually had a fun conversation uh, when we were discussing chapter one with my son. So I'm reading that book for the second time. Not my, not my preferred choice of reading, but you know, that's what I'm reading right now. You asked me. So I, I told yeah. you. <laughs> I, dude, I, I love your, you're helping your kids um, grow up to be men of consequence. That's powerful, dude. And, and I, and I've got to say, you know, you are, and, and to describe it for our listeners, but you can go on our YouTube channel. Like you've got, um, you have this beautiful beard that was like down to your chest at ABAI when, when last we were hanging out in person. And, and now I, we, we hop on and I mean, don't get me wrong. You're handsome as all get out. You're just clean shaven, man. And yeah, so it was like a little bit of me died, but Hey, in service to helping your Sons become men of consequence. Power to you, brother. Yeah. Well, we, we we said, you know, it's like teaching a, a young man how to shave by describing it to them is like teaching a kid with autism how to share their toys by reading them a social story. Like you just, there's just something you have to just, I had to show them, dude. I was like, you know, I didn't want to, I mean, I love, I'm a bearded man. I'm just a bearded man for life, I think. So, but I was like, I need to teach them how to shave. And I was like, I'm just not sure I can teach them how to shave. Like there's, there's, there's a, there's a, a process like you have to go through the whole process to learn it like from step one to you know step whatever so yeah i i father's day it was a fun moment for us though like we created a moment together that hopefully we'll all remember for a very long time but yes i still have a hard time you know when i when i walk into the bathroom and i see the beer it's a little bit like i'm taken aback by it a bit <laughs> right on well i um uh let's see in terms of what, what am I reading right now? I've got, so I just picked up brothers Karamazov. This is my fiction book. Mm. Um, I I've tried it. This is now my third time. And, and each time before I've only gotten to page 50. So I, I'm past page 50, but I'm going to really like, I feel like this is a book that I should read. And then I'm, I'm reading this book called uh, the goal. It's actually like a graphic novel, but it's all about like the oh. theory of constraints and uh, the importance of like single-minded focus, um, which, which is kind of interesting. It's, it's applied to like a manufacturing facility, but it's a graphic novel. I was like, I could, I'll blow through this, but yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, leaders are readers. Wait, Robbie, what Do were you- like the highest and lowest points? of your entrepreneurial journey and like, what did you learn from those? Yeah. So, um, I think the lowest point, I'll start with the lowest point. I was in Austin. This was, I think 2015, perhaps we just moved to Austin recently because, you know, we'd started our, our practice in California and we were expanding to Texas. So Texas was the, the, the original uh, intention was uh, Texas was, was a, our, it was like our multi-state, multi-site uh, play, essentially. So we were expanding from California to Texas. We went to Texas and we, I think I just underestimated, I, I, I think I underestimated a number of things. I'll say, I'll say that. Um, we get to Texas and things in, in, in California, just we're struggling all of a sudden we hit a point where we just, we, we were struggling. And, um, and so I I would say there were numerous points. And even before that though, like I'll say that as, as a young entrepreneur, I had a family, um, we, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. And so we just, we had a strong, you know, desire and we had mission and vision for, for what we were going to set out to do. But I'd say the low points were like, there were a handful of times where we were really close to not making payroll. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you're hours away. Um, I remember one evening I was just ultra, like I was anxious because payroll was due the next day. And I was like, man, if we don't get this, you know, back then we still got physical checks in the mail. And so I remember <laughs> yeah. checking the mail and I got a check from, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield or whatever it was. And there was another moment like that in Austin where I remember waking up in the middle of the night, you know, we, we get to Austin, things were, 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 were you know, we're struggling uh, primarily financially, just like starting a, starting a, a practice is so hard. Um, there was that shift at that time where most of our patients were regional center, but then we were mm-hmm. shifting to commercial insurance. Yep. And so during that shift, you know, now our, now our, our payments are getting much more delayed than they'd ever been. Regional center was very good at, you know, we got paid monthly. So that was, that made kind of building the business a lot easier. But there was one time in Austin where I, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm just like, I feel like I'm just like, I feel like I'm sweating blood because payroll was due the next day and we didn't have the, we didn't have the money to, to make payroll. 
And so, you know, I get out, you know, I get out of bed early and we, we just, we, we hustle, you know, just not unlike selling peanuts at Angel Stadium, you <laughs> figure out a way. So I, I'm not even like, I'm not even certain how we did it or what we did at the time, but like we made payroll, you know, we've never missed a payroll, but those were really hard times. Those were low times because you're doing, you know, in a lot of ways, you're doing all the right things. You're, you know, you're, you're prioritizing the people and you're, you're, you're doing everything you can. You're building for all intents and purposes, a really great business. However, there's still just so many just difficulties along the way that, um, so, you know, those are, those are lows, but paradoxically, those are also the highs. Like mm. I learned from those things. So when I, when I think of like, when I think of lows and highs, uh, I think that in the lows, there's just so much, there's so much you can learn. And I did like, we, we, I think we've learned from our, from many of our mistakes and, um, and in the highs, you know, I think that there's this misconception that entrepreneurs, like the, 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 the end goal of an entrepreneur is to get acquired or sell their company. And even in those, you know, I've, I've transacted a couple of times and even in those, you know, what, what others might consider a high, there's, there's immense loss also. And you feel like, man, like, you know, when, 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 when you do what you do for reasons outside of just like the financial reward of, of doing it, like, um, you, you th there's this real sense of like th the highs can be lows, you know, when you, when you, uh, when you get acquired, there's, there's this sense that like what we have is different now. And, 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 and maybe that's not a high, like, so I think that there's a, there's just, the journey is it's filled with, with goodness and, and mystery and beauty and excitement. Um, and I think there's benefit to all of it, but, uh, we've certainly had our, our fair share of, of, of loans along the way. There's almost what I hear you describe like this yin and yang or a duality of entrepreneurship and you can't really separate them to your point, right? Like there's a, you know, maybe a high of transacting, but then the low that, uh, that comes with it, that things have changed or like, you know, struggling to make payroll. Um, but then there's a learning moment that comes out or when that check does come through in the mail and you open it up and you're like, yes, we've got it. And this is a very underappreciated part of entrepreneurship in my experience because, and rightfully so, ABA owners, operators aren't going to go to their, their teams and say, Ooh, guess what? We're like one or two payrolls away. But like for the 7,000 ABA providers out there, my guess is they, they probably don't all have like the three to six months of cash in the bag to pay, right? That's just, that's a, that it's a really, really hard thing. I, it, so it's part of that sort of underlying stress of being an entrepreneur. But then to your point earlier, the, the risk that comes with it, there's also a, hey, I can make this happen and I'm going to learn if I don't, you know, if I don't fully make whatever it is today happen. ABA practice owners, are billing and insurance issues getting you down? Well, let me tell you, Element RCM is your answer. Element provides world-class revenue cycle management services, contracting, credentialing, authorizations, billing, and more. Element's your partner, so you can focus on what you love to do, providing the highest quality services to your families and clients. Element's a preferred partner of the Behavioral Health Center of Excellence, and its founders have nearly 20 years of experience owning and operating successful ABA organizations. They understand you. They know that every dollar counts, that integrity is everything. Element works with any practice management system. And Element's not a vendor, they're your partner. So find out more and take a free revenue cycle assessment at elementrcm.ai. Yeah. It's, uh, I couldn't agree more, man. Like there's just, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of highs and lows along the way. And I've just tried to, you know, I've, I've tried to stay as, as humble as I can in the highs and learn from the lows. Cause there's just no, you know, it's like being an entrepreneur is like being, you know, it's like, it's like the trials and the tribulations that you face on a regular basis are just difficult to describe unless you've, unless you've been there. So yeah, there's, there's lots of highs and lots of lows. You learn from all of them. And I tried to now, you know, now 10 years in, I try to find joy in, in the highs and the lows and it's there. You just, you just gotta be, you just gotta be good at, at finding it, you know? Mm, find joys in the highs and the lows. I, I beautifully said, man. Uh, well, you know, we are, um, uh, you and I are doing a CEU event through behavior live mm -hmm. tomorrow, you know, Wednesday, June 29th. Um, and, uh, and the topic is organizational culture is like Bigfoot, frequently talked about, often misunderstood, and 
rarely measured. So Robbie, like I'll, I'll put you on the spot here, but how do you define organizational culture? Yeah. Uh, so there's your standard, I, and, and I, don't, I don't mean this negatively, but there's like a, de there's a working definition of culture within, within like ABA, right? So like behavior analyst, um, people like, you know, Aubrey Daniels International, brilliant, you know, incredibly good work that, that they've done. I think that uh, they describe culture as, you know, how we do things around here. Um, mm -hmm. I know that there's a, there's a consultancy or a firm, uh, one of my, one of my uh, committee members on my dissertation committee, he worked at uh, Alula again, another, you know, and uh, basically provide consulting services. And I think they described culture as like, it's behavior that's either reinforced or punished over time. And mm -hmm. I think that these are good definitions. These are good definitions of culture. But, you know, going back to like reading and trying to immerse yourself in, in, in good literature, I've tried to learn from other disciplines. So when I, when I read uh, books that do not have necessarily a behavior analytic orientation or, or you know, philosophical, the, the philosophical um, underpinnings of, of these, these books or these authors, there's, there's perhaps a greater emphasis on, on just other aspects, like seemingly immeasurable or like undetectable aspects of culture that it's like it's like an energy so what i've tried to do is like i have a working definition of culture that i that i'm i'm, I'm you know and i continue to shape and, and and change over time i think about it like from two perspectives i think about it as like a, as an academic kind of in the lab and then i think about it as the as an executive you know like how, how do i how do i how do i continue to learn and grow in my understanding of culture and i have to you know i have to pull from behavior analytics sources I have to pull from from just the, the business literature at large but so I think that yes culture is how we do things around here it's the behavior you know the verbal behavior the nonverbal behavior in in how we do what we do organizationally but then there's something I think very subtle that's there 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 is like a spirit or an energy in organizational culture and I say that it's seemingly um in, in you know immeasurable or intangible but it's not um in all cases uh, you just have to, again, you have to be very good at, at looking for it. So uh, like one of the, one of the sources I read recently, you know, there was a greater emphasis on values and norms and psychological safety within culture. Mm. And so, man, there's like, I would say, um, I would say like, I'm excited to do this, this presentation with you and um, tomorrow because it's uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be rad when, as we dig into like culture and how it's defined and, all the different ways that it's defined. I mean, there's a number of definitions of culture that are out there. Um, you could, you know, you can find them. So really like my, my job has been trying to synthesize all the working definitions of culture into something that's maybe like more robust, right. That touches on all the things like how we think about the culture, not just what we do that you can, that you mm. can, you know, that we can observe. Yeah. You know, I've always, it's so true. It's so true. It's like one of these things that there's not like truly an operational definition, or at least there's not like one that people settle on. And maybe that's part of why it's so hard to get culture right. I, I mean, I've always described an organization's culture as the behaviors that get reinforced, mm -hmm. but I don't know, like pick that apart for me. Cause I think maybe that definition is missing a little bit of the, how, like how we think about the culture, not just what we're actually reinforcing or punishing day to day. But I don't know. What do you think? I think you're, I think you're right. That's, this is what I'm saying. Like, I think we're missing, I think we're missing, I think we're missing really valuable uh, elements of, of the, this definition of culture or what culture is when we, when we neglect all parts of it, because yes, culture is what behavior gets reinforced. I think that's very accurate. Aubrey Daniels also says in all of his wisdom, Behavior goes where reinforcement flows. Yeah. I totally agree with that. Yes. And I love Aubrey Daniels. I, I think it's amazing. I think, I think the work that they've done, so good. But I still think that there's more. <laughs> yeah. When I when I when I read, when I if I took a business book off the shelf and I opened it up and it's about organizational culture, there's things in there. There, there are there are, there are concepts in there that we're missing that I think are important. So values norms uh we we talked about psychological safety that's one aspect of organizational culture that's really important um so yes i do think that there's a lot more to organizational culture that that we can continue to to research that we can continue to 
um, work with as 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 leaders. But yeah, how you think about the culture? Because look, all day, every day, you could be doing all the right things, Jonathan. But if somebody thinks a particular thing about your culture, in a lot of ways, their perception is their reality, and the way that people think, like thinking, is also behavior. So it's like you have to be mindful that the way that people think about the culture and also i've learned this this is like one of my my newest things that i'm thinking a lot about i go on long walks and i think about these things but it's like culture is also how people talk about like your culture is how people talk mm. about you have to teach people how to talk about your culture so yeah. man which which also impacts or influences how they think about it so yeah there's a lot here i i do we can talk all day i mean literally all day we can talk this is a lifetime of work to do on on organizational culture. So that's why that's why I love the, the, the subject. It's it's so good, man. It's rich. It's so rich. It is rich, and there's just not a ton of like research, right? Like unlike the research in clinical practice or even OBM research and, and other things, there's not this research. And like I want to ask the, like this question of you of like why is culture so hard to get right? But I also it, it, as we're talking through this. Like it, part of me is answering my own question here. Like, I mean, you and I have literally spent our careers, right? And like in organizations and, and startups and um, super passionate about building the strongest cultures. And we still don't have a fucking common definition, right? Like maybe that's part of the challenge. If we can't start with the right common definition, yeah, like yeah. this and every one of the 7,000 ABA providers, like practice owners probably might come up with a different definition, but I don't know. Why else do you think it's so hard to get culture right? Dude, um, I sent you I sent you those blogs on our website that uh, that I wrote, and I think there was there's one line in there that maybe answers the question to an extent. It's like culture cannot you you know you simply you just aren't able to speak your culture into existence. Like we're just not that we're just not that powerful, right? As humans, we we speak and things just happen. Um, uh, so the the I think that's one reason why this is hard work. Like we could talk about this all day long, but unless you're unless you're engaging in the behavior that you need to to build the thing that you're trying to that you set out to build, it's just it's difficult. So I think culture is is it's it's hard to get right because I think people have a lot of first they have a lot of misconceptions. Like what's culture? Like we don't even have a definition of, 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 mm. of culture in like one that I think is is robust enough that we can all agree. You know, you put a bunch of different academics and, and see. And, and leaders in a room and we all agree that that's the definition of culture that we want to use um i'm not sure that we've got that i could be wrong but so i think it's hard because there's just a lot to culture that um that you need to understand and there's there's an alignment in organizations that needs to occur in order to get the culture that you want so mm -hmm. when i think about it from a behavioral systems perspective you've got you know you've got your organizational level you've got your process level um and then you've got your performer level and everything needs to be aligned so that you get the results that you want, so that you build the culture that you want. So it's it's just difficult. It's a lot of work. It's very laborious, um, and I think that's why it's hard to get right because it's easy to talk about it. Like I was I was meeting with an executive years ago, and and we were talking organizational culture, and the executive thought that the culture was so great because of the company picnic. That's not that's <laughs> it. Like that's just not culture, man. Like that's that's not how you get a good organizational culture. It's not a one time a year company picnic. It's like it's so much more than that. It's the day to day, like in the meeting, how we behave and how we love one another and the results that we get and how we got them. Like that's culture. So it's just hard. It's just really hard. Oh, if only culture could be defined as the organizational picnic. That would picnic, make yeah. the company, the company picnic. That would just make things so much easier. Well, you know, I oh, think you've just issued a challenge out there that we're going to have to go do is like, let's go escape to the mountains for a weekend. We'll pull in CEOs um, uh, academics, a whole variety of people. And we're going to walk out with the definition of culture, or at least having had a ton of fun. Yeah, <laughs> that's that, right. That, yeah. That's Not the, yeah. Yeah. At minimum, we're going to have a lot of fun. But yeah. This, that's why I think it's hard is like, we, we, we need a, we need just need a lot more. Um, there needs to be a lot more, uh, integration of concepts across disciplines mm. to get like a really, I think, solid working definition of, of culture. One that can be widely kind of accepted. Yeah. Um. Well, what are three things that you've learned um, or you've done differently at your current organization, Morocco Learning, um, around yeah. culture that um, that you've learned from your leadership and experiences in the past? Yeah. yeah, so I would say that one thing that we've done differently this time is I was I was profoundly like influenced by the uh, 
years ago by the Netflix culture deck that they released. You know, I, I think that there was influences in, in how we did things at, at, at Cultivate. Uh, things like, you know, hire superstars, work really hard to retain them and let them do their work, you know, get out of the way. And I, I've, I've been fortunate to work with a number of superstars in my career. So, but one thing that I, I, I really wanted to do um, significantly different this time was I wanted to understand what were what variables really led to uh, the culture that we wanted, you know, be taking a more like measured or academic approach to like the culture. So we've tried, you know, at Morocco, we tried to codify the culture. Like I have a culture deck that I'm working on um, that I just add to regularly. I just continue to put notes in there. Um, it's an integration of concepts from different disciplines. And, you know, so it's going to look, it's going to look, you know, part academic and, and part, you know, organizational. And, and so I want to, I want to codify the culture because I've been stuck with this situation in the past, Jonathan, where it's like, man, our culture was so great, but like, I'm not really sure why, like, I'm not sure how that happened or why it happened <laughs> yeah. or like, yeah. but it's just really good. It's like amazing. And I love it. And, but like, how did we get here? Like, what did we do? What were the things that we did, the variables that we manipulated to get the result that we did? So we tried to just codify, um, you know, in, in the spirit of describing the phenomena of interest, we've tried to document it better. And this is something that I'll probably release to our team in a year. You know, it's gonna take me time to continue to, to build it out, you know, this, this framework of culture. And so I think that's one thing we've done differently um, this time. You know, the other thing is, I've, in the spirit of kind of learning from your past, in the very first organization that I was a part of, you know, Patterns Behavioral Services, I um, I think I overemphasized. No, I no, I say I'm not saying this right. Um, I I I really prioritized the clinical work, and rightfully so, right? I was a clinician. That's all. I, you know, that's what I was good at. But the over like the over prioritization of clinical work and the under prioritization of like organizational health led mm. to you know it was difficult right like we weren't keeping up operationally our, our operations were not commensurate with our clinical work that we were doing clinical work was way up here operations were down here until we put time and effort into balancing it out then you know fast forward um to texas you know through the way that that all happened you know we start a new organization there and at that point i think i the, the pendulum had swung the other direction <laughs> over optimize you know operations and personally i didn't pay as much attention to the clinical work because i was so focused on like at that time i was in my doc program i was learning you know i was like doing obm type work and so mm -hmm. so you know over prioritizing the the ops um and so i think one thing we've done differently at maraca is like really bringing true balance to like you know, bringing both of those things into immense focus and, and mm. making sure that there there's alignment and there, you know, our operational excellence is commensurate with our clinical excellence and vice versa. And so that's, that's another thing that, that we've did, uh, that we've done. Um, and then all along the way at Morocco, at least, like I'm really trying to teach the leaders how to talk about the culture and how to mm. think about the culture. Like we were talking about, like, you know, empowering them to really like take organizational culture take the bull by the horns. It's like, no, no, I want you to think about this in this way. And I want you to talk about mm. it in this way. And so it's been really exciting for me, at least to like shape the leaders at Maraca to, to, to then shape subsequent leaders. So it's been, you know, I've, we've got a great team. Um, it's been mm. quite exciting. That, that idea of, I mean, you have to shape your team and shape leaders um, to, to think about culture in the right way. Like that, that's, that is gold. And I want, as you're developing this culture deck, is that uh, like, how are you going to include your team in that sort of the, the, just the, the messy process of like, you know, creating, this is culture the Morocco way. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got, we've got kind of a, a development uh, like program, if you will, for, for all of our BCBAs and leaders. So that they can continue to get like mm. next level in their skill set. Mm -hmm. And one of the courses that they take will be on like organizational culture and organizational behavior. And so they'll learn like the nuts and bolts of, um, of the culture through that. That's the kind of the primary mechanism by which we'll, we'll train them up. Powerful, powerful. Well, uh, you know, Robbie, one thing I've always appreciated about you is you're just like a really super freaking genuine dude. Um, you know, and like the first time we actually like had a Zoom call, I don't know, a, a while back, like you you just call me bro, right? And it wasn't like the fake like, dude, bro. But like it was the like, it was natural. It was like, bro. And I was like, fuck yeah, bro. But yeah. like, have you always been that authentic to your true self? Or did you have to learn that? No, you know, I'm I'm this dude. I'm the son of, a, of an Iraqi 
uh, immigrant, you know, Middle Eastern mom, like growing up in that environment, like my, my you know, uh, Middle Eastern families are very like authentic. There's not like, I think Westerners, like we're as, as Westerners are good at like having different, you know, like putting on different yeah. selves, if you will. Like, nah, I, I grew up in, in a family where you were just real all the time and you shared exactly what you were thinking when you were thinking it. And so I have had to learn over time to just like be really, you know, you got to be measured and, and uh, so, yeah, no, I've, I, I, I'm glad that you, you know, I appreciate that comment, but no, I've always been the same. It's been, been me since, you know, since, since day one. That's awesome, man. Yeah. You know, and it's a good point that like our, I mean, certainly our upbringing and our own culture in this case, ethnic culture and certain norms, right. Will influence um, how we, how we interact and how genuine we are. Well, don't ever lose that man, because I think that's one of the most important parts of being a leader is authenticity to your leadership yeah. style. What, do, like throw one question at me, anything, make me answer on the spot. Uh, all right. What's, what's your most beloved nickname and why? The mammal. The mammal. Yeah. The why? mammal. Why is that your nickname? Or, or as, 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 as all my friends from college call me, and still call me just mams, M-A-M-S. So this, um, <laughs> this goes back to 1996. I, um, my third year at the university of Virginia, Virginia, I studied abroad in Beijing, China. And so I was in Beijing for like five months, came back and, um, I, uh, I don't know, I found a place to live like near other friends and was able to get like this room. So that's cool. But like, I had no furniture. I had no, like no desk, no bed, no nothing in this room. I was just like this dude, like in reverse culture shock, having come back from a country of a billion people. I'd, I'd spoken like mostly Chinese for five months. And so anyway, so I was just like, whatever, I like dumped out my suitcase and I just laid out my clothes. So I had a not hard floor to lie on for the bed. And I think one of my buddies was like, oh man, you're nesting like a mammal. And that stuck. And to this day, my friends all call me the mammal or man. The mammal. The mammal. That's like a very, that's a very, uh, like, feels like a very manly nickname, the mammal. <laughs> I guess, you know, I, I don't know why. I like one of my favorite animals is the otter, like the sea otter, you know, cause they just naturally play and they like lie there and they can break oysters on their, like, it's ridiculous what they do. But, um, so I, yeah, I don't know. What's your nickname, man. Yeah. Do you have a most beloved? I've got a couple nicknames. So like the longest standing nickname that I can remember at least for, was from a friend, maybe 10 years ago, Brandy. She used to call me the hustler. I'm not sure why. <laughs> Maybe just, I was just like, you know, I got a family and trying to start a business. Yeah, that was about the time that we knew each other. So just like working hard constantly trying to, you know, make, make things come together. And, um, but then I moved to Austin. One of my good friends in Austin, I love this guy. His name's Ian. Um, Ian used to call me Bayside. Bayside baller, um, <laughs> I'm a basketball player, you know, so, um, or used to be at least, and he used to call me Bayside. I don't know why. Like, I think he just thought like the California boy, like, you know, you play basketball on the beach or I don't know. So yeah, Bayside, Bayside and, and the hustler. Um, Love it. Know. Bayside baller and the hustler. All Bayside, right. Well, I'm, Bayside I'm, baller and the hustler. I, well, we're going to have to go like post up in the paint, man, next time we see each other. And I, I mean, I have no basketball <laughs> skills, but I love the game. It's fun. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I can describe myself similarly. No basketball skills, but love the game. <laughs> Robbie, what's one thing every ABA business owner should start doing and one thing they should stop doing? Yeah, so I would say you should start creating time and space to be productive, you know, whether it's pursuing your like academic or your scholarly work or whether it's making time to like work on the business as opposed to just kind of managing the whirlwind. Um, uh, what's the, what's the book, uh, the four disciplines of execution mm. talk about the, the whirlwind, you know, leaders are always tempted to just manage the whirlwind all the time, which is like your day-to-day -day work and, and all of that, but they're not making time to work on the most important. And I think that a lot of ABA, you know, leaders, leaders in ABA are likely in that position because there's a lot, there's a lot to the whirlwind. There's a lot to do to keep up. So I would say really start making time and, you know, creating time and space for your, for all of your work. Like this is one thing I've had to learn so I can pursue some of like my, you know, academic work and, and things of that nature. I would also say you should, um, you should probably stop allowing all of the like 
the competing contingencies to dictate your day to day. We all have so many things that are coming at us all the time. So I would, you know, again, like in the spirit of doing what we just talked about, like budget your time, tell your time where you want it to go, not the other way around. Like early on in my career, man, I'd like get to the end of the day and I'd feel unproductive. And it's because I was letting my day dictate what I did as opposed to like telling my day what it was going to look like. So uh, I would, I would highly encourage, you know, leaders to do that. And then on a personal note, like, I, I couldn't I couldn't say this more strongly enough. Um, you know, you stop finding all of your identity and your purpose and your kind of your professional accomplishments, um, mm. whether it's like the organization that you're in or whatever. Because um, you know, it's that there, there's more to life than just what we what we do. You know, nine to five or or eight to five or in the case of many entrepreneurs in ABA, six to nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, later at times. So yeah, just uh, yeah. Balance, man. Balance. Balance. So critically important. And, and as you described that, it, it reminds me of a book I, I read many years ago. Um, it was called Deep Work that that describes exactly yeah. that. Like carve yeah. out time for yourself, right? And that's when the, the true productive and like deep thinking um, and neat yeah. come out of it. Is this where the concept of flow comes from? I've been I've been meaning to like do a little bit more like research and reading on this idea of flow. Um, but is that, is that in that, I think deep work is one of the sources or references for this idea. Is it not? You're, you're exactly right. It, it, it's, and the stat here is that it takes something, I'll, I'll get the exact number of minutes wrong, but it's like when you get distracted by the whirlwind, right? The chaos from a phone call or an email that you happen to go want to check, um, uh, which by the way, is like the least productive way a leader can spend their time is on email. So just like full stop, but it's like, it takes 15 minutes to reorient and get back in the mode. And so it means you're never getting into that flow state, that flow work state. Yeah. And, sure. um, and I, I am fascinated by flow. I don't know if you've like followed the flow genome project. I think they're trying to deconstruct how, um, how you create flow for yourself, whether it personally, professionally, doesn't matter. Flow is all the outcome flow is all the same. So that's a whole separate podcast. I think we're, we're going to have to chat. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, you know, one other thing, speaking of productivity that I just learned recently, um, communication scales, your time doesn't. So mm. in terms of being productive and meeting the needs, there's a lot of like, it sounds very like, it sounds very, uh, you know, I don't know, insensitive perhaps to just say like, oh, prioritize the most important things. And it's like, but people are actually, you know, they're struggling. There's a lot sure. to do. So one thing I've learned um, just in the last, you know, handful of years is your, your communication scale. So I try to document as much of my work as I can in written form so that I can, you know, so that I can rely on, on, on that when I need it. Uh, but your time doesn't. So like trying to really invest in, in the, you know, the, the, the process of just like writing and building things out organizationally so that when mm. my team has questions or whatever, you can refer them to something that that's built out instead of answering the same question, you know, five hundred <laughs> right, right, right. um, just, just, you know, be proactive and, and put pen to paper and, and get, you know, build resources. So that's, that's been a recent, you know, maybe last three to five years. Oh, build resources. Another reason I love you, man. Like that, that I, so I do the same thing, except I'm way lazier. I use Loom as videos. And so if I'm doing something, I like, use I'm Loom like, also. no way. I love Loom. I, I love it. It's like, okay, I'm all right. Yeah. I'm going to go kicking and screaming, doing this thing that I feel like I should be doing, but I'm going to put it on Loom. I'm going to record a video and then you know, I it will, we'll get it in a queue for my team to create an SOP. But it's just started uh, using Loom recently. It's fantastic. It's really mm, good. Game changing for helping to communicate in ways that other others can understand, right? As opposed to just in yeah. ways we understand. Uh, yeah. Robbie, where can people find you online? So I would say primarily like where I where I am most active, you know, is LinkedIn. Um, so I would say, you know, you go to the website, you can contact me via our website, morocco.learning.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. I use Facebook on occasion for work type things. Um, we just started Maraca recently, so uh, there there will be you know we have a we have a I think we have an Instagram page, a Facebook page, and a LinkedIn page. Those are all good sources to stay you know connected to as we continue to you know put resources there. And uh, we've got a lot of I think exciting ideas for um, just content development that that are worth you know watching out for. Awesome. I'll drop those in the show notes. All right, man. Are you ready for the hot take questions? I'm ready. Here we go. You're on your deathbed. What's the one thing you want to be remembered for? I would say I want to be remembered for how I um, loved the people around me. 
Mm. Most important self-care practice. I like to get lost in the foothills here in Boise, you know, whether it's running, walking, hiking, biking, uh, whether I'm by myself or with my family, um, that's probably the most, that's like the, that's like the most exciting, like thing I enjoy the most. It's getting lost out here in, in Boise. What's your favorite song? Oh man. Well, I was, uh, you know, I started my career in, in uh, early intervention, you know, autism classroom. So definitely lots of preschool songs come to mind. I'm going to say going to the zoo by Rafi. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Going, I'll, I'll, I have not heard going to the zoo. I, I'm going to go. Oh, mama's taking us to the zoo tomorrow. Zoo tomorrow. Zoo tomorrow. Mama's taking us to the zoo tomorrow. We can stay all day. There it is, dude. It's like three minutes of pure magic. It's so good. That's beautiful. So good. And of it course, is. you're a singer. You're a singer as well. Outstanding. Who man. knew? Who knew? <laughs> so if you could give your 18-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Well, I would say um, as an 18-year-old, uh, hey, Rob, time marches on. Uh, just, you know, it, it really does fly by. There's just beauty and mystery in all of life, the, the, the highs and the lows. So um, just be ready to enjoy all of it as it comes to you. Mm. Beauty and mystery in all of life. Well said. All right. And you can only wear one style of footwear for the rest of your life. What would it be? Well, I'm, I'm like a bit of a, bit of a, a sneakerhead, um, or I used to be. I'm not anymore because I just don't have the time. <laughs> but uh, definitely sneakers, preferably low top. If I had to choose a specific one, it would be the Hirachi. Like that's probably my favorite shoe. Uh, so yeah, that's that that that's my uh, yeah, that's 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 my preferred choice of, of of shoe. Hey, dude, this has been so much fun, and I've learned so much. Thank you for being on the pod. Thanks for listening to Building Better Businesses in ABA podcast. Stay tuned for our next exciting episode. In the meantime, please like, subscribe, share, and comment. We value your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on social media at elementrcm.ai.